Welcome to the Mission Forward podcast, where each week we bring you a thought-provoking and perspective-shifting conversation on the world around us. I'm Carrie Fox, your host and CEO of Mission Partners, a social impact communications firm and certified B Corporation. Coming off an amazing conversation last week with Linda Villarosa, we have got another amazing journalist with us this week and a Pulitzer Prize winner at that. Tina Rosenberg is an author and journalist whose work has shaped my work. She's the co-author of the Fixes column in the New York Times, co-founder of the Solutions Journalism Network, and her book, Join the Club, How Peer Pressure Can Transform the World, is one of my absolute favorites. We invited Tina on the show to talk about the role that news plays in shaping our views and understanding of the world. In this episode, we talk about the power and impact that the media has and about the importance of asset-based framing, something that she, Natalie, and I are all very passionate about. So stay tuned for what I know you're going to think is a great conversation, and I'll see you on the other side. Let's start at the top with just a simple check-in. Tina, where do we find you today? And what is one thing in your view that has your attention? Well, where you find me is in my home office, which is not a surprise. Um, that's where we find everybody these days, right? One thing that has my attention right now is the issue of journalism and marginalized communities. And there's a lot of attention to the bias in journalism, but the most toxic bias in journalism is one that a lot of people don't even identify as a bias, which is our focus on what's wrong, our definition of news is what's wrong, and how that has created a false and highly misleading and extremely toxic narrative about marginalized communities and what we can do about that. What I have learned so much from you over the years, and I know so many newsrooms have learned from you and your approach, is this solutions journalism approach to flip the narrative, to change folks' behaviors and beliefs by how you tell a story. And I'd love you to talk a little bit about solutions journalism, the, the approach and, and how you came to kind of coin that phrase. Sure. Well, I mean, it's a bad phrase. Um, <laughs> and, and I think it's too late for us to change the name. <laughs> But really, a good solution story should never use the word solution. It's a somewhat misleading term. So we should probably be called the Responses to Problems Journalism Network, <laughs> for obvious reasons that uh, we didn't choose that. Um, solutions journalism is an attempt to rebalance the news, to alter what is the norm, which is a focus on problems, and instead balance that with reporting on how people are trying to solve problems. Not as cheerleading or advocacy or fluff or good news, but as real reporting, covering these attempts, not celebrating them, but covering them, what's working about them? Why did this work and others, others attempts like it didn't work? Um, what's not working about it? What are the challenges that still remain? The idea is to surface insights about solving social problems that are useful to society. It's so interesting that you talk about it in that way because uh, I don't watch local news on a daily basis because in high school, 
uh, in my junior year of high school, I lost two friends in a car accident. And how I found out was that I had the local news on as someone was calling me and I saw the car and I recognized the car. And what it did for me was it made every story, every night, very real. So when there was a fire or when someone was killed or and so for me to look at local news and to see 80 85 percent of it and the lead of it to all be about the problems and the negative aspects of it got too real and too heavy for me. When you think about solutions journalism, do you think that America is ready for it and why? Oh, my God, yes. I mean, it's ironic that journalists are sort of the hardest people to convince of this. Mm. Non-journalists get it right away. Mm -hmm. Of course you would cover what's working. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's obviously part of what's going on in our world, and we shouldn't artificially leave it out. Journalists, I think, understand that at a, on a gut level, but they're afraid to try those stories because they don't want it to come out sounding soft or sounding like cheerleading. Mm -hmm. So the task then is to, to show people how to do these stories with rigor and high standards, which is pretty easy to do. Um, but not only is, is not just America, but the world, I mean, we work all around the world, ready for it, but long overdue. By far the biggest reason people tune out from the news is its negativity. Yeah. It's not politics. By far the biggest reason people don't trust the news is its negativity. Anyone who lives in a community that con considers itself marginalized, rural people, um, Appalachia, the South, communities of color, you ask them what they think about how journalism covers them, they would say, you come in here and you look for our worst stereotype and that's all you cover. That in that's infuriating. Um, people crave this. There's an awful lot of research that has shown that these stories are what the public wants. Mm -hmm. So long overdue. I want to go back and maybe where we'll end up spending a good amount of time is on language, the words that we use, the words we don't use, the stories and um, statements that we reinforce by those words. And what have you learned, Tina, over time around what you see happening in newsrooms and maybe what needs to change in newsrooms about the, the way folks use language? One of the projects we're working on that we're about to launch is something called asset framing. And this is an idea that comes from a man named Trabian Shorters, who you probably know and have worked with, both of you. He used to be a journalist at the Detroit News and was vice president of the Knight Foundation and then um, founded and now leads an organization called the Be Me Community for Black Male Empowerment. And Trabian looked at the research on how our minds form ideas and came up with this idea that we are now adapting so it's meaningful and useful for journalists. Trabian's original focus was not on journalism, but we are working with him to, to do that. And the idea is this. Um, your unconscious mind, on the first time you are introduced to a person or an idea, connects that to a narrative that we already know about in our brains. And your conscious mind has absolutely nothing to say about that. There's nothing you can do about that. And, the, and once it's set, it's hard to change. And then that narrative starts to filter in facts that agree with it and filter out facts that don't agree with it. 
And so how you introduce a person or a place is really important. So asset framing for journalists is saying, when you introduce someone, don't introduce them based on their challenges and deficits and problems. Introduce them based on their skills and assets and aspirations. In the next paragraph, you can get to their challenges and problems. We're not saying leave that stuff out. But it's the difference between introducing someone as a, quote, at-risk youth, which, which sparks a threat narrative in the reader, or introducing them as a student, because chances are that person is a student. So it's not the same as people first language, which, while important, is also deficit-framed. And it's not about erasing the bad stuff or trying to sort of recast a drug dealer as an entrepreneur. That's not what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. We're talking about meeting people in places in a way that gives you information about them as a full whole person, rather as triggering the stereotype narrative. And we think this is, this could be really important because the way journalism has, has traditionally covered communities like this, I think this may be a bit of a generalization or an overstatement, but not much. It is a racial injustice that has set a narrative that justifies all other racial injustices because we've created narratives about these communities as problematic and unworthy. And that's what people know about them. If if you're not in contact personally, that's what you know. You know what the media says. Well, you know, Tina, it's interesting because to me it speaks to some of the issues around social identity groups and the labels that we use to organize ourselves in society so that we are grouping ourselves to understand how to be in relationship with each other. And rather than living by the label, to really reflect on and share how people experience the world. And that's a very different way of thinking about it because for us, for instance, we focus on the language of oppression. And it's, it's, it's when you say social sector is sick with this, that is an understatement because the language that we put into communities is the language that communities then reflect to us. So when we call them vulnerable, which they perceive to be weak, they then reflect that language to us because they think it's the expectation, right? When we say we empower, that then says, well, if I'm not here to empower you, don't, do you have power? I, I think you do. You know, we see the use of the language non-white all over the place, even by very well-educated, well-intended, down-for-the-cause kind of people, and saying non-white centralizes whiteness and otherizes everyone else as though they are some sort of a deviation or variation of white. And so I do think it's so important that we rethink the language and its asset and more. Right. It's that asset based language and even more than that. So I really appreciate the work that you're doing in this area. I totally agree with you, Natalie. That is so important. And and I had not thought about how this plays out in the NGO sector, but you're totally right. Mm -hmm. Um, Fundraising materials. um, It's it's that's a very similar problem. Yeah, it's a it's a terrible, I mean, exploitive issue in terms of how nonprofits use individual stories and their um, their challenges as fuel to fundraise against. Yeah. When I was little, I had a I cut out a magazine ad and put it on the door of my room and it said, Tina has never had a teddy bear. 
And it was an ad for like, I think it was a Save the Children-like organization that you sponsor a child. And I mean, even, even back then, I mean, I chose it obviously for the name, but even back then, I know there's something wrong with this. I think the other thing to, to point out about the work that you're doing, it has an important not just trickle down, that doesn't seem like the right phrase, but this this opportunity to ripple out across so many different newsrooms versus being an initiative or an entity that sits inside one newsroom. And I think that's the power of Solutions, Solutions Journalism Network. And it rings especially relevant with me right now when we think about how little diversity there is in in the news that so many folks consume. Right. So we have our go to set of news outlets. We rely on them for insight and information. Often they are reinforcing our own beliefs and understanding of the world around us. And so if we are not constantly challenged and presented frames that that introduce new ways of looking at the world, we will continue to just see what we've always seen. And it does seem like you're trying to dig into that and challenge folks. I'm curious how people are responding to it. It's it's funny. When we started, we assumed there'd be a lot of pushback against this idea that people would say, well, this is not real journalism. This is PR. And we sometimes get that for like the first five minutes, and then we don't get it. I mean, it's very easy to explain that this is not PR, that this is real journalism, and the tremendous need for this. And the tremendous advantage newsrooms who use this can have, you know, it helps you it helps you develop new revenue streams. It, it creates more trust. It engages people. It actually gives you more real-world impact in your reporting. But the problem has been, I mean, journalism is a traditionally very defensive profession and resistant to change. The reason I think solutions journalism is being accepted is that the profession is is suffering these twin crises that are longstanding now. One is economic. I mean, with the death of, of advertising um, and you know, the fact that Google and Facebook take the vast, vast majority of all online ads, there's nothing left for news organizations. So there's that. And then there's our existential crisis, which is people don't love us. People don't trust us. And that's probably equally longstanding. But we just started thinking about it with the election of Donald Trump, I think. But it's made journalism very open to new ideas. And so there's a lot of interest in this. Ironically, though, at the same time, it is an imperiled profession. It's worse being a journalist than a coal miner right now in terms of layoffs. You know, some huge percentage of newsrooms in America have closed in the last 10 years. And those that haven't closed are a quarter of the size that they used to be. And so journalists want to do new things, but they don't have the resources. If they want to do new things, they have to stop doing old things, and that's hard to do. If you have to fill the paper every day, or you have to constantly put out new digital stories over the news cycle, you don't have the time to devote to more in-depth reporting whether it's solutions journalism or investigative or explanatory. And that's been a big barrier. People are so stressed and, and it's so hard for them to do their work that they can't really focus on new things. So our big, our big challenge has been that, the resource, the resource issues in, in, in newsrooms. 
Tina, I wonder, as you think about consumers of news, uh, one of the things that's been frustrating for me when I've written things for placement and so on, and the editors come back and they want to slash and burn. It's cut, cut, cut. It's too long. This whole thing about you can't really fully develop a concept or idea or tell a story. And it seems as though we've socialized people for short really short consumption of information that doesn't allow for a level of development of ideas. Is there anything that you can think of that we should be doing more broadly to help cultivate news consumers who can appreciate depth? Because I'm frustrated. I work in public health primarily, and it's not an easy thing to explain how health happens and and how relationships and policy matter to whether people have opportunities for health. We need more time and more space and more engagement. Is there anything that you can think of that we can or should be doing to cultivate that level of engagement? That's a great question. First of all, it is not true that people don't like long-form stories. It's true for most stories, people read the first couple of paragraphs and never get beyond that. So it is incumbent on journalists to learn how to write extremely concisely because the realistic point is that chances are if you leave it for later in the story, it'll be left forever. People just won't get there. But there is a lot of appreciation among among many, not all readers, for more in-depth stories. And actually, one thing that is, I think, I mean, obviously, the Internet has killed our attention spans, and we're used to this constant barrage of short um, hits of serotonin, and that's not going away. But with the death of advertising, advertising is a business model that relies on selling a piece of the reader's attention to a corporation or an advertiser. If we're moving away from advertising, and the newsrooms that survive will have to move away from advertising, We're moving towards a new model where we survive by selling journalism to people, either through subscriptions, memberships, other forms of reader revenue, or getting grants or other um, kinds of money like that. And that is much better for good journalism. That is a business model where the more, the richer, the better, the more high value, the more in-depth the story, the better it does because it's more engaging And it leads people to subscribe to the newsletter and subscribe to the... Nobody subscribes to a newspaper to get clickbait because there's no shortage of other places to get that. But you will subscribe if that news organization is offering you something of high value you cannot get anywhere else. Mm -hmm. And that prioritizes longer form, more in-depth, deeper stories. I do have, so as you said that, the thing that came to mind for me was if we were all living in Tina Rosenberg's world, And you had the power to determine how the next generation of journalists perceive their role in the national narrative, so to speak. What would you say that role should be? The job of a journalist is to hold a mirror up to society so we can learn about ourselves and improve. And I think that is correct. That's what it should be. The problem is we've been holding up a a very distorted mirror. And we need to hold up a true mirror. And I'm not even talking about inaccuracy. The stories I'm complaining about aren't inaccurate necessarily. They're just not the whole story. And the slice of the whole story we're telling gives the wrong impression, makes makes people believe stuff that's not true. So 
they may be accurate stories, but when you add them all up, they give you a very wrong picture of society. Mm-hmm. So I think what journalists need to do, and I believe the younger journalists are very open to this, is broaden their concept of what news is and be conscious of how our framing and our choices, our word choices and our story selection tell us the whole story or not. It sounds like you're saying that journalism has an informal algorithm because I'm th- I'm listening to you and in a way it sounds like you're leading and guiding people in a direction the way that journalism has been working is that you lead people down pathways and it's hard for them to get off of those paths uh, which reminds me a lot of when we talk about algorithms in social media that once people start looking at certain things that's all that they end up seeing so that's what actually popped into my head as you were speaking yeah I think the problem with it in addition to <laughs> all the other problems with it is that journalists are not conscious of this. We don't understand that we're doing this. Yeah. We think, you know, hey, this story is true. There was a shooting in this neighborhood. There was a fire. Therefore, if we report it, we're telling the truth. Mm-hmm. And, and people aren't thinking about the cumulative effect of only seeing stories about shootings mm-hmm. in certain neighborhoods yeah. and not seeing anything, any other aspects of life there. So downstream, Ben, Tina, do you think that there are changes happening in journalism schools and in programs to make sure that as young journalists are emerging from their programs, taking their jobs, that they have that awareness? Whereas what I see you doing is in a lot of ways upskilling existing journalists to be more mindful of of their work and their actions. Well, we also work in journalism schools, um, dozens of them. And there are lots and lots of schools now that either have solutions journalism courses or they have solutions journalism modules that they like put in every intermediate reporting course. Young journalists are much more attracted to this idea than the crusty older ones who have been brought up with journalism in a certain way and then have to unlearn that idea before they can think about something new. With young journalists, it's much more instinctive for, for them. So I'm, I'm optimistic about the future of that. I want to go to um, one of the themes we're taking on in this whole season of the show is around the role of public health in our day-to-day lives and the decisions that we make in, in the news that we consume. And so thinking about that intersection between our public health and our news. And I'm curious, as you think about not just the events of 2020, but as we are here in 2020, 2021, still working through the effects of COVID, how do you think news has played a role in people's connection to one another, in people's connection to their community, and, and maybe too in people's connection to their own health? What role does the media play? When COVID first hit, a lot of people who had tuned out from the news rediscovered it and, and, and decided geez, I really need to learn about this. And the media played a very important role in just sort of showing people how not to drown. Um, You know, here's where you can go to get the equipment you need. You know, here's where you can go to get COVID tests. Here are the rules. Here's what's going on with schools. It was just really basic information. I think there was a lot of coverage of people coming together as a community to help each other, which was a big feature in a lot of communities, mutual aid and community organizations. Um, and that was that got a lot of attention. So I want to tell you a story that started with some tweets by a nurse in North Dakota who said, I have patients who are denying that COVID exists 
even as they're being intubated, even as they're dying. And that series of tweets got turned into stories. Journalists reported on that. It became very widespread. And the reason it did is that it confirms a lot of people's biases about how deranged some of the COVID deniers can be. Problem is, it wasn't true. Um, and um, they could not find anyone, any other nurses in North Dakota who would confirm this. And a lot of people said, no, 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 that is not happening. And journalists didn't investigate it because it confirmed their biases. And, and so there's a, there's a lot of that going on where we make stories out of stuff that shows how extreme the other side is. Yeah. And it, it, I'm certain it happens, well, I know it happens in, in right-wing media as well. And that is falsely polarizing. America is actually not that polarized, but we think we're a lot more polarized than we are because the media just shows the extremes on both sides. And I think that's had a big effect on turning what should be a straightforward public health issue into a political issue. 100 um, percent. And the way that the messaging has been skewed, I think, cut into our ability to be empathetic and compassionate uh, and, and patient and connected and to feel a sense of responsibility to one another during what has been an incredibly difficult time. It pitted people against one another, even within their own families, which is such a, an incredibly sad thing to see because that's not over. It's going to take a lot of work, a lot of conscious effort to heal that. And I'll also say that the damage done to public health during this time um, I, I think it's probably going to take a, a solid generation for public health to reestablish its footing, to see to see what people who work in public health, health directors who were threatened and basically run out of their jobs um, based on the types of things that we're talking about here. It, it, it's alarming. I've seen great people leave the profession during this time, and so much of it tracks back to information and how information has been used and spread and cultivated and the whole nine yards. And so I think um, from a public health perspective, I know that there's a lot of work that we will need to do moving forward to reshape and reframe what public health actually is and to try to build trust and rebuild trust. So I appreciate you sharing that piece because I do remember the story, Tina. Yeah, I th you're so right, Natalie. And, and I think it, what's scary is that the closest parallel to what you're saying, it's an, almost an exact parallel, is in, in terms of um, people's views about who won the election. Yeah. Um, and and there, there should not be parallels between those two things. So then the, the ultimate public health solutions journalism story then is, is there anywhere in the world where we see the media working in a way that is is challenging stereotypes, that's building equity, that's reinforcing the humanity and the shared connection. Um, it, it's something that we think about a lot, that it, truly, is there a place that is getting it right? Or across the board, is is this not a United States issue? It's not an American issue. It's a universal issue. And I, I'd love to get both of your takes on that. In my opinion, while many, many countries are very polarized, and the United States is not even among the most polarized. Don't know if that makes you feel better or worse. <laughs> um, 
the polarization of public health is 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 unique to the U.S. and a few other countries that also have had autocratic, big lie leadership. Um, you see it in Brazil. You see it in the Philippines. You see it in India. These are the places where leaders have abandoned their responsibility to help people survive this and instead chose to demagogue on it. And that's where you see mask wearing and vaccination being such a polarizing issue. In most places, it isn't. Mask wearing is not controversial. Well, the, the interesting thing that comes to mind for me is, you know, one of the things that I've, I've been saying for years is that in the in the absence of communication, you're communicating something. Public health has this this mindset that when public health works, nobody knows that it's working, right? Because there's no outbreak, there's no pandemic, like it's it's not visible. But we're just here, kind of keeping it all together. And it, for me, that drives me nuts because that sort of over the top, I would like to say, professional humility that public health folks put forward is not helpful because. People have to understand we all play a role in the production of the public's health. And so if you want people to show up and be able to engage in ways that will produce, you know, good health, well-being and quality of life versus illness, disease and early death, you have to talk about public health with a degree of transparency and in a way that is comprehensive and accessible. And so we, the silence of public health all along made this moment possible. Because had public health been doing what it should have been doing solidly for 50 years, when this moment arose and the miscommunication and discommunication started to happen, misinformation and disinformation started to happen, it would have been so easy to shut it down because what people would have said, no, that's not true. Right. We know better. We, we, we know different. But in the absence of communication, people were able to fill in the blanks with whatever information served their purposes. And now it is so hard to to dislodge that information, which is erroneous um, and really, really has undermined public health. All right. So here's my last question then for both of you. So where do we go from here? Right. So, Natalie, you're right. There's a ton of problems big problems that have to be figured out. We're thinking about how those problems are addressed in newsrooms. We are thinking about how those problems are addressed in public health systems. But if we think about it from the perspective, as we wind down here, from the perspective of the news consumer, because everyone who's listening to this isn't a journalist, everyone who's listening to this isn't in public health, but everyone, I hope, is a news consumer. So what are the things that all of us as news consumers can be doing to challenge, hold accountable, dig deeper, and move us toward that that envisioned future. Carrie, the, what the issue is, there's nobody who's saying, I'm going to ignore everything I'm being told and hold views that are di that are diametrically the opposite. The people who who believe that vaccines can make you infertile or um, that there is no such thing as COVID believe that because that's what they're reading and listening to and watching. Yeah. That's the information they're getting. They're relying on the information they're getting, just like people who believe the opposite are. It's not irrational for them. Um, the problem is we live in a society where we not only have our own opinions, we all have our own facts. And, and I don't know what we can do to change that. But 
it's a perfectly reasonable conclusion to make if that is what you're hearing 24 hours a day. I don't consider myself to be an optimist per se, but this period of reentry, as we re-enter so many different parts of our lives, I think creates an opportunity for us to use journalism and other forms of communication to shape and frame a narrative that is about valuing one another and valuing how we choose to be in relationship. And we can't miss this opportunity. It's true. And and to your point, Tina, it needs to get beyond politics, beyond the issue. It needs to get back to, to people, however we find that way. It actually comes right back to where you started today. Asset framing could be the tool that could help so much of this across the board, right? It comes back to how we are telling stories and consuming stories. That's true. Thank you for the stories that you tell and for the the way that you are helping to shape the field that you have, have been part of and have had such an incredible impact on. Well, thank you so much for having me, Carrie and Natalie. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mission Forward. If you like what you heard, please share this episode with a friend and check out other episodes and subscribe. And if you're willing, please leave us a rating or a review. They mean a lot to me and they can help our show grow. Mission Forward is produced with the support of Nimra Haroon and the Mission Partners team. Engineering by Pete Wright. Music this week is Blue Race by Out of Flux. Thanks for your support and see you next time.